Thank you, musicians and choir leading us. Several weeks ago, we set out on a journey through Paul's letter to Timothy, examining life together. Uh, this is what the church is supposed to look like. And Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it's kind of the key verses to this letter. Paul writes, these things I write to you, writing to Timothy, and I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Uh, certainly, Timothy must have been excited as well as the church at Ephesus to, to read this, to hear this, and to contemplate the reality that Paul might be coming back to see them, for they loved him dearly. A little background to this letter again, very quickly. Paul, on his second mission trip uh, in Acts 18, stops through Ephesus for a short time, about a, maybe a week or so, just a very quick trip. Um, and he tells them when he leaves them, my, my prayer, my hope is that I'll be able to return to you at some point. And then on the third mission trip, he goes back, returns to Ephesus, and plants this church, Paul and Timothy, along with a, another team of individuals. And in Acts chapter 20, uh, the Bible says that he stays there two to three years, and God blesses the church. He, along with this ministry team, served with great results. Acts 18 and 19 describes that miracles occurred. It says the word of God prevailed mightily there, that many were saved and baptized. The congregation grew, and they were discipled. They learned what it meant to follow Christ and how to function as a church. And when Paul leaves it, the church is vibrant and healthy and strong. And so after about 10 years of being gone from a Roman prison cell, Paul receives some information, some word that the church in Ephesus is, after about 10 years, is having some problems, some issues have surfaced. And so from a house arrest, he writes this letter, this pastoral epistle, an older seasoned pastor to a younger one. And in chapter one, verse three, if you have your Bible, he writes to Timothy to encourage him first. It's a pastoral letter to a younger guy to encourage him. And one of the things he says in verse three is, Timothy, stay with it, remain. And there's some evidence that he's having a hard time maybe considering throwing in the towel and going back home. So Paul encourages him through this letter. And the older that I get, the more I understand the value and the importance of we as God's people encouraging one another, just encouraging one another in the Lord. Then Paul writes to provide some guidance, and this is what we've been looking at. He provides him a spiritual strategy. The theme is, he's telling Timothy, focus on spiritual health, both your health as a pastor and the church's health. And he goes through these, and we went through these. I'll just touch on them very quickly. These are the priorities. Chapter 1, the ministry of the words. Timothy, devote yourself to study of the word and prayer. Make sure that what you're preaching is doctrinally sound and, and make sure that the other teachers and the other teaching going out from among the church is also solid and strong. 
Then he kind of refers to this in the first chapter. Don't sweep things under the rug. Establish a culture of church discipline where all of the members in the church are interconnected. Relationships that are built upon Scripture and the, where all of the members are accountable to God and accountable to each other. I hope that you individually feel a sense of accountability to brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. Where you're accountable, where you're connected, that, that needs to exist for spiritual health. And, and then third, he talks about the importance of prayer. Establish this, Timothy, as a priority in the church. Pray like crazy. Pray fervently. He said in chapter 2, he said all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Pray. And as I read through the, the second chapter here, it, um, you can't help but see there's a connection when you think about prayer where he commands the people of God, especially the men, to be praying, devoting themselves to prayer and intercession with the sovereignty and foreknowledge of God for folks to be saved, in folks being saved. As you study the scripture, there is this continual line running through the Bible mysteriously regarding God's sovereignty and as well as God working through human responsibility. They're, they're together. God does all of the saving and commands that you and I do all of the praying. And so there's a relationship. There's a connection there. And as we as a church are compelled to pray, notice in chapter 2, verse 3, we're to pray for the lost. He says, this is good and well-pleasing in the Lord. In other words, our greatest motivation for prayer is simply that it brings pleasure to God. Pleasing to the Lord, verse 4, who says, who desires all men to be saved. You see that? Anthropos is the word. God desires all human beings to be saved. And that same word occurs four times in that text, referring to all people. So doctrine matters in the church. Preaching and teaching is essential for spiritual health, as well as you and I studying, as he later says in his second letter, 2 Timothy 3, studying individually to show ourselves approved unto God, church discipline, high accountability is a must, and prayer. And then in verse 8, he singles out the men. Guys, how you doing when it comes to prayer? Paul tells Timothy as his pastor, call the brothers out. Call them to reject being spiritually passes, passive for such is the tendency of most men. And then in verse 8, you see this there are three things. Get the men in the church to refrain from arguing. I don't know. We don't know what they were arguing about. Stop quarreling. Stop arguing to pursue godly living. He says lifting holy hands to the Lord and to step up in prayer. And I want to emphasize again, this call for men to pray in the church does not exclude women. And I just want to touch on a few things Again and again, because we're going to see this as we get into some things that Paul says about women. So to preface that, again, the call to men to pray does not exclude women. And so think about these things. Men and women in the church both are spiritually equal in creation. Men and women in the church both created in the image of God which means both men and women are to reflect God. 
Both men and women in the New Testament are spiritually equal. Paul says there's neither slave-free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. All are one in Christ Jesus. Both men and women in the Bible are equal in the way that God dispenses spiritual gifts. You'll find no differentiation in the way that God dispenses spiritual gifts to men or women. There's no difference. Both men and women are equal in value in serving the Lord. Men serving the Lord, women serving the Lord are equal in value. And if you're not quite sure of that, study 1 Corinthians 12. All parts, all members, all gifts, all members of the body, all are valuable, all are equal. Let not one member say that they're superior to the other or some lesser part is inferior and not needed. Our service to God, men and women, are equal before God. Now, we may have difference in callings and different functions, but everything that we do before the Lord, men and women are equal. And I'm making that point because of where we're going to go here, because I'm not sure that everybody in the church believes those things that I've just said. And that kind of lays the groundwork that we're going to see. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, both men and women are a chosen generation. Both men and women are a royal priesthood. Both men and women are a holy nation, God's own special people, that both men and women are to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Both men and women who once were not a people are now the people of God, who once have not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Everything that Paul has written thus far applies equally to both men and women in the church. And this text that we're going to see starting in chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse, th three, or chapter three, verse 13, is the most controversial text, I'm convinced, in the Bible today. And I'm going to say this to you. It is sad that it's controversial. It is a, is a sad thing that this is so controversial um, as we're going to see. Let me ask you, any of you ever marinate a steak? Anybody ever do that? Like to marinate a steak? I like to do that. Well, you, you make up some marinade, some kind of liquid and seasons and sauces and whatever you put in that marinade, and then you put that steak in there and you let it soak. You let it marinate for all of those spices and things to infiltrate the meat and and you let it soak for a while. Well, this text that we're going to look at is a text that's uh, been on my mind. It's been marinating in my mind for a long time, allowing my thoughts to just to kind of focus on this for many weeks. And you'll be happy to know that next Sunday I'll be ready to throw the steak on the grill. So you're going to have to wait another week, all right? And... Uh, and I, I, I want to say this before I just skip past this. We're, we're going to deal with it. But I want, to, I want to just say this. I feel a weight and a pressure, not, not in a negative way, but I want to tell you I feel a real, real responsibility before God to make sure that I'm expounding that text correctly because I think it has significant bearing on the life of the church. How we see each other, how we function, our roles. And so I just uh, make no apology I've been reading and studying um, 
and I'll, I'll share my story about this a little more in detail next Sunday, but um, to maybe just get a little head, I remember the first time as a young man that I started really studying the Bible, and I came across teachings in 1 Corinthians 11 about spiritual headship and trying to figure out what kafele, that word headship, meant. And remember Ephesians 5, studying about men and women and husbands loving your wives and wives submitting, respecting your husbands. And, and uh, 1 Corinthians 3, studying uh, some other things. Just, just going through this, 1 Peter 3, just studying about men and women in the church and roles. And I remember the first time I studied, I didn't know what any of that meant. I was raised in church, but I didn't, I didn't understand those teachings. And, and I knew that Mindy and I were married. We got along, liked each other. And we seemed to be doing pretty good. And then started studying this and then went through two steps. One is after I studied it and started figuring out what I thought the Bible meant, then I started going through a process of how do you apply this? How does this function? How does this apply to our relationship? And that was another pretty good learning curve. And then I kind of settled on things for... 15, 20 years, and then more recently I've found maybe it's my age, but I'm starting to ask different questions and look at some things a little differently than I once did, and I've stopped relying upon what everybody else is saying about this text, and I spent a lot of time in prayer before God, studying the actual words and comparing those words to other places in the New Testament, relying upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit to actually guide me, because everything that I'm reading and studying about everybody else and what they say, they all disagree. Now, they may agree a lot, but there's all variations of how each guy interprets these texts. I've actually been reading what some women say about these texts and what some of those things. And it's been a really good process, so we'll get there. Jump with me to chapter 4. And so I want to raise this question this morning as we consider. And I'll go back to starting at verse 8 and going through chapter 3. But I want to jump into chapter 4 this morning as we consider the subject of, and this is no simple text either, either in chapter 4, verse 1. And I want to raise the subject of departing from the faith. Departing from the faith. And I want you to consider this question as an individual follower of Christ. What causes your faith to grow weak? What is the root of no longer trusting in God? So when life, it gets hard and we are hurting and going through some difficulties, why is it easy in some cases to forget God, to forget about his goodness and his love and his faithfulness, and just perhaps like Hymenaeus and Alexander in chapter one of Paul's letter, that our faith in God becomes shipwrecked, dashed upon the rocks of doubt and despair. And so I invite you to consider this warning from 1 Timothy chapter 4. And the warning is this be on guard not to allow popular ideas in the culture, popular opinions, and trends of our day to undermine your faith. And I believe very seriously, strongly, that this happens. Let me give you a scenario a young person grows up in church all of their life. And they become familiar with Bible stories and they learn things, but they're not really at a place in their life where the, any of that is really tested. They know it in their head. I mean, perhaps it's not really fully 
taken foundation or root in their hearts. And so they get off away from church. They go away to college someplace and they start neglecting church attendance and they neglect Bible study and they neglect Bible reading. And they're around people who didn't grow up in church and professors who didn't grow up in church and they get more education and they hear ideas and theories and criticism, textual criticisms against the Bible. And they, and they're, what happens? They stop attending church, they're not reading their Bible, and you'll hear things like, well, I'm not sure really I believe that anymore. I'm not really sure that the gospel is the only way to heaven. I've got friends and they believe this, and I've got other friends and they believe that, and I've got other friends who live this way and that way, and I'm not sure I really, really believe what God's word says anymore. I think it's a very, not only a possibility, I think what Paul is warning here against is a reality. And so I invite you to read with me chapter four, starting at verse one, as we consider departing from the faith. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Some of your Bibles may say will fall away from their faith, the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he gives some examples of these doctrines of demons, this false teaching that you remember Paul has been dealing with when they removed Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he tells Timothy to stay at it, clean up the ministry of the word in the church, and here in verse three, some examples of those who forbid others to marry and commanding to abstain from food, certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, and he closes for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So just, let's pray just very briefly. Father, you're here with us always. Our request is for the anointing of your indwelling presence to give us ears to hear, minds to recognize your voice, and hearts to be open and honest before you that are soft and tender and pliable. And for faith in you, to be renewed in your unchanging faithfulness and goodness in your gospel and the love that you have for us and have demonstrated for us in Christ Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible open, I want to encourage you to keep it open. And I want you to notice Paul's instruction here in chapter one really goes back to the very first priority. For spiritual health, what does he say? Pay attention to the ministry of the word. Uh, the single most important thing that you will ever do as a follower of Christ is spend time alone with God in his word. More than worship, more than church attendance, more than anything else, and all those things are good and necessary, we're commanded to do, but nothing will ever replace how God works in your life as much as spending time alone with him in the word. 
Paul has taken Timothy back to the first priority. We didn't read it, but here in chapter 4, look at verse 6. And so with that warning in mind, notice what Paul says to Timothy in verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good pastor of Christ Jesus, a good minister, nourished in the words of faith. Look down at verse 11. And so these things command and teach. So he's taking him back to Scripture, back to the Word. Paul tells Timothy, stay nourished yourself. Feed on God's faithfulness. And if you instruct the church in such of those, these kinds of things, you'll be a good pastor, a good shepherd. Why does Paul say that? Because I believe it's he knew that what he wrote to the Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. My, my life verses are from Psalm 37. Some of you are familiar with the promise in verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. Any of you ever heard this? Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you what? The desires of your heart. So some of you are familiar with that. However, most of us skip over the previous verses. The previous verses say, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. And so for us to delight ourselves in the Lord and for him to give us the desires of our heart, that's a conditional promise based upon first trusting God daily, trusting the Lord, second, doing what is right. Any of you ever struggle with that? on a daily basis, doing what's right. And then third, wherever God places you, that you will feed on his faithfulness. God, I'm gonna trust you today. I'm gonna do what is right, even if it's costly to me. And I'm gonna feed on your faithfulness. Thus, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. That's kind of Paul's message to Timothy here. Stay nourished. Feed on the Lord, feed on his word, feed on his faithfulness, and as you do, pass it along to others. That's written to a pastor, but that's applicable for all of us, amen? Each of us, feeding on God, feeding on his faithfulness, delighting ourselves in him and passing that along to others. And so what's the warning from this text? What's the issue? What's the concern? Well, notice, look at verse one. He says, during the last days, some may say latter days, which is always a reference to end times. The biblical definition of last days or latter days in the New Testament refers to the time. You remember when Jesus ascended back to the Father in Acts 1? You remember that Jesus said the disciples saw him ascend into the clouds? And he says, hey, don't, why do you stand gazing here? For as the Son of Man ascends, so also you will see him come again. And so between his ascension back to heaven and his return again to this earth, the time in between that is referred to as the last days, the latter days. It's a reference to the present days in which you and I are living. And notice regarding these last days, the word exhorts us to walk worthy of the gospel. Paul says to remain spiritually alert, be sober, be vigilant. The idea is that every follower of Jesus is to remain spiritually alert, sensitive to what's going on around us. You'll see that in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. Why does 
the Bible tells us as Christians, walk circumspectly, walk in wisdom, walk in love, walk in the light, walk in truth, be sober, be vigilant. Why does he say that? Because of this warning. Verse 1, because some during these days are going to depart from the faith. Some are going to fall away from the faith. The word there, fall away or to depart, however your Bible may translate it, is from a Greek word, aphistomy, which literally means and describes an action to remove. It can be translated to desert or to withdraw. And so in the last days, some are going to desert the faith. Some are going to withdraw from the faith. You'll find a word that's closely related to it in the New Testament, and it's the word stray, to stray away. But this is a different word, and it's much stronger. It is a willful, purposeful decision. It is deliberate to move from a previous position with resulting in some kind of change in a person's faith. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. So who is this referring to? Do, do you and I believe that, that Paul is referring to people losing their salvation? I was kind of raised that way, a little more Arminian in the way that I was taught raised, but from years of study, I don't believe that's what Paul is referring to, nor do I think that's what the New Testament teaches. We certainly believe in the doctrine of the perseverance in the saints, but we also believe that, that everyone's saved, Christ holds, God keeps, he, they're secure in the Lord. So what is this referring to? Who is this referring to? People, some in the church that might, in these last days will depart, will walk away. There's going to be a change in their faith. Well, I think it could mean one of two things. One is, I think it could easily refer to people in the church, in the church at Ephesus, who are not saved. Who are not saved in the church, perhaps close to being saved, perhaps they have heard the truth, but they've not yet repented and responded. Or it could refer, this is even worse, because of the false teaching, this terrible teaching in the church, they didn't even have the opportunity to hear the truth. Maybe persons had come into that church after the apostle Paul left, and the doctrine wasn't sound, the gospel wasn't sound, and so either, whatever reason, they weren't saved. Either way, Paul can be telling Timothy to pass along a concern, a warning to those who are in the church that weren't really saved. Um, to illustrate that, we certainly know that in the church, not everybody is saved. Jesus tells a parable about tares and wheat, and he says not everyone could even refer to the church who says to me, Lord, Lord, I, I knew you, I served you, I did all these things. You remember Jesus said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I don't even know who you are. If you, if you go home today and open up a lawn chair and set in your garage, that doesn't make you a car. And just because somebody comes to church regularly, it doesn't mean they're a Christian. It doesn't mean they're a follower of Christ. Do you remember the parable of the soils? Jesus tells about four kinds of soil. It provides, that, that 
parable of the soils provides a picture for you and I to understand how different ways people respond to the gospel. And one of those, Jesus said, there's some people who respond to the word, to the gospel, and they're like rocky soil. They hear it. They hear the word. They get excited when they hear it. They may even hear it with joy, even agree with it, and say, yeah, I, I believe that. But Jesus goes on to say, however, that person who hears never establishes any root, and when trials and tests set in, Jesus says they fall away, they depart. They're nowhere to be seen. Um, Judas is a controversial person in the New Testament, but I certainly think his life could apply to this, his example. He follows Christ. He knows who Jesus is, but he rejects him. He rejects his word and is lost. He's an example of being apostate, one who hears about, actually heard Jesus, heard the gospel, but rejects faith in Christ. God, in his sovereignty and foreknowledge, previously knew that Judas would willfully reject the gospel, deny Christ, and be lost. Thus, in keeping with God's word, departing from the faith, fulfilling scripture. So certainly this falling away, this departure, refers to those in the Ephesian congregation, but it also could apply to the Hillcrest congregation for a person who's heard the gospel, who's heard the teaching of scripture, who might still hear, and in a, as the Hebrews describes, maybe have even tasted the word and received it with some joy in the past, but has never truly been saved. And so Paul tells Timothy, warn the church of this. That's one category. I also think this falling away, this departure could describe and spiritually apply to those in the Ephesian church who heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and were saved. They were saved, but through deception, through false teaching and weak teaching, their faith and their confidence in God begins to wane and to weaken. Think it's possible today for a Christian, really be a Christian, truly been saved, but to neglect God, to neglect worship, to neglect time in his word, to neglect the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching, and over a period of time, their faith begins to weaken, losing clarity on who God is, listening to other voices in the culture around them and other people's voices, losing confidence in Scripture and what God says, resulting in a weakened spiritual position for God. Still saved by faith, but certainly weak, weak faith. Let me give you an example of that. Think about the church of Corinth. You remember the church at Corinth? Yes, they were saved, but what was their problem? Paul says, he commends them in chapter one, you're saints, saved, regenerated, you know Christ, saints. But then over chapter three, he rebukes them. Yeah, they were saved, but he says, you've never grown up. You've remained spiritually weak. Instead of spiritual maturity and usefulness to God, instead of feeding on solid food and being nourished on meat and sound doctrine, Paul rebuked them for being immature and he calls them babies. And he pictures an entire congregation and church, grown people sucking on baby bottles, 
nursing on bottles. He says, you're still on the milk of God's word. You've never matured. And, and the result is you're carnal and you're full of division and conflict and strife and there's no peace in your life. And many of you are still living in moral lifestyles like you did before you came to Christ. The issue is the Corinthians never grew up. Their faith never maturated. And in the case here of this warning to Timothy regarding the church at Ephesus, the warning is genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, true Christians, while they do not lose their salvation, they can drift from the Lord. They can drift. They can fall away, growing weak in their faith, doubting God, doubting his word, maybe even coming to the place where they're doubting God becoming carnal, living in the world, losing intimacy with God. And if you remember a few years later, do you remember what Jesus said of this very church? Revelation 2, he says to this church, I still have this ought against you. You have left, you have departed, you have fallen away from what? Your first love. Me. Faith in me, trust in me, devotion to me. And so what does he say to them? I want you to remember, I want you to pause from where you've departed, from what you have fallen away, and repent. I want to ask you this morning, what would you say is the condition of your faith? As somebody else, not the faith of Hillcrest Baptist Church, what would you say is the condition of your individual spiritual faith in God? Paul warns Timothy to make the church aware of it. He says, what? Well, this is certain. This is certain. This is going to happen. How do you know it's going to happen? He says, because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. You remember earlier in the book of Acts when Paul is heading back to Jerusalem and before he makes that final trek back, he stops in ports in Miletus and he sends word to the elders of the church at Ephesus and they, he calls them to come and meet with him and he warns them that this will happen. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 20, verse, verses 28 through 30. Paul said this was gonna have been revealed to him by the Spirit and then in verse 38, he says to these elders, take heed to yourselves. Sounds like the same thing he's saying to Timothy. Take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you shepherds to pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, sounds pretty certain, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up, it's talking about in the church, speaking perverse things that you could apply, demonic teachings, demonic doctrines, speaking things contrary to the faith, these individuals will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Same word, to fall away, to draw them away from the faith. Timothy, this is going to happen, therefore making a point of emphasis. God has called you to shepherd the flock, so prepare people ahead of time. Get them ready. The writer to the Hebrews warns about the same thing. He says, brethren, take heed, take care, lest there should be in any of you an evil, an unbelieving heart in falling away from the living Lord. I don't believe he's talking about losing your salvation. And I believe that very thing is still happening today. 
And by the way, I don't think it's, just to use that as an example, I don't think this just happens to college students when they get off away from home and get out of church and neglect the word. I think this happens to adults in the church, Christians who just get busy working, running with kids, doing other things, and they just start neglecting God and the worship of the Lord and his faith and faith in the Lord, and faith begins to spiral and weaken. I want you to consider in verse 2 and 3, what's the cause of this? What's behind the departure? Well, it's false teaching, weak teaching, or no teaching, or somewhere in between. False teaching, weak teaching always opens the door, as Paul describes to the Thessalonians, and it results in feigned faith. If if any of you go home today and you look at your front door and your back door and you open it up, most of you should have some weather stripping around the door. You know what I'm talking about? And weather stripping around doors can get old and it can rot and deteriorate and weaken. And when that happens, what, what's the result? You, you lose energy. Hot air comes in that you want to keep out. Cold air that you want to keep in goes out. You lose energy. And not only do you lose energy, uh, bad weather stripping, bad seals can also allow little creeping things to come in that might harm you and hurt you. Think about this. Likewise, you and I are protected by God and energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. How? Through his word. Protected by God. Do you remember Jesus in John 17? He said, Father, protect them. Keep them from the evil ones, sanct- and what does he say? He says, set them apart, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. Energized and empowered through the scripture. If you didn't know, this, the city of Ephesus was a cesspool of demonic activity. Let me read to you a couple other verses. And back in Acts 19, when this church got started, and it says, many believed, many were converted. And then in verse 18, it says, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who believed had practiced magic, dabbled in the occult, demon possession, and demonic activity. And it says, many of those believed practiced in that magic, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. It was full of demonic activity. Evidently, some of that began to creep into the church. Some of that teaching began to infiltrate the body. Hillcrest, you and I have a real enemy who is a liar, who is the father of all lies, and he would like nothing better than to convince us that he's not really real. I've talked to people who grew up in church, made professions of faith, they get to be as adults, and they say, I'm not really sure I believe in hell anymore. I'm not really sure I believe in a devil. I'm not sure I really believe in demons and all of that. I, I'm not sure about all of that. Satan would like nothing better than that. He is a deceiver. Paul describes him. And says he disguises himself as an angel of light. And his strategy has never changed. He's always attacked you and I as Christians the same way. You see it start in Genesis chapter 1. He takes the form of a serpent. And in his craftiness and in his 
subtlety, he begins to, and I always do that. Did you see that Disney movie, The Jungle Book, where Khan was up in the tree, the snake, and he says, trust in me, and he hisses, and I just think about that serpent in Genesis, and he's subtle, and he tempts how? By distorting the word. He distorts the word. Remember when he tempts, he says, did God say that? It's probably soft. Do you, do you really think God said that? Do you, if God said, do you really think God meant what he said? And he gets into Eve's head and he raises doubts about God's word and he begins to distort the word. He adds to the word and takes away from the word. Why? To deceive her, to get her to the point where she denies God's word. It's the same way he works today, to weaken faith. What's the cure? Well, be sober, be alert, be vigilant. Be aware of how the enemy seeks to work against us. Do you remember Paul? Uh, some years prior to him writing this letter to Timothy, telling Timothy to warn a church, he writes to them another letter, it's Ephesians, and he writes this to the church regarding these same things, Ephesians 6. Hey, church, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against principalities. We do not wrestle against powers. We do not wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in these evil days and having done all to stand, stand therefore. Having girded your waist with what? Truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts, all the wiles of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me give you some examples as Christians. When you and I are exposed this week to people, which I hope we are, and we begin to engage with people and we listen to their views about life and their thoughts about living and their opinions about the culture, that's all good. It's good to be informed, to know what other people believe. It's good to connect and relate to them. And as you and I read things in the media and study things and hear things and we get education, that's all good. And we're exposed to ideologies and theories, that's good. We need to be informed and culturally aware of what's going on. And when we engage in the culture and we live in the culture but we're not of the culture but we connect with people, that's good. Thus, always learning, always connecting, always trying to love. All of those things are necessary and valuable. But here's the key. As we live and as we go through all of that, we learn to process and test everything through Christ and his word. You and I uh, process everything through the lens. We see everything. We view everything. We think everything through the lens of Scripture. 
That's why 1 John says, test it. Everything you hear, everything you're supposed to, test it with scripture. Let me close with some suggestions. First, just, just encourage you to remain fixed on the scriptures. Don't let the enemy deceive you and weaken your faith that, that you neglect God's word. The Bible says all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired and it's profitable for doctrine and proof and correction and training unto righteous living so that all of us can be thoroughly equipped or thoroughly furnished unto every purpose that God may call us to. Time with God in his word. Second, develop and stay clear on your worldview. Do you have a worldview? As a follower of Jesus Christ, have you established a worldview where you're clear on, there's three questions kind of foundational to having a biblical, Christian, Christ-centered worldview, and those questions answer, where did I come from? Where did I come from? Did I make my way out of slime and just do random nothingness? You, we believe that we all emerge that way or do we believe that we, there was a creator? Where did you come from? Why are you here? Why are you here? Are you just living, going to work every day, eking out a living Monday through Friday and trying to get through the week by finding some rest and relief on the weekend and then Monday morning you start it over again and it's the same rat race. You're working to make money and to pay bills and you rest on the weekend and you just... Is that... What describes your life? Where did you come from? Why are you here? What's the purpose of your life? What's the purpose in doing all of that? But to honor Christ, to glorify the Lord. And where are you going? What's going to happen to you when you die? And I'm going to tell you, the only religious system, teaching, whatever you want to call it, refer to ideology, the only thing that stands up and holds up is God's word. Why we're here, where we came from, and what's going to happen to us when we die. Establish that worldview and process everything that you hear through the lens of that view. And third, as a follower of Jesus Christ, set your mind. Set your mind. What do I mean by that? Don't allow someone else to set your mind for you. Set your mind. You familiar with Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3, Paul. Let me read two verses. Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Transform how? By setting your mind, the renewing of your mind. Where are you? How is your faith? 
Do you know for sure that you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ? Christian, are you here and your faith is weak? You've kind of, maybe you're not in the same position in your faith with God, maybe that you were last year, five years ago. You just kind of become weak and drifted. Today, Jesus would say, remember from where you've come and turn and turn and reestablish your love for the Lord. Let's pray together.